Hi everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Seth Hayes and Drew Sloan. Seth is an assistant professor in the Department of Bioengineering at the University of Texas at Dallas. Drew is the CEO of Valentis, a company known for their products aiding biomedical research. They're here to speak about quantitative measurements with automated high-throughput systems in rodent models. Let's jump in. First question, uh, this is for you, Drew. What uh, system training is required and, and also provided by Valentis to get labs up and going with the motor track system? Sure. So we have uh, setup guides, of course, um, documents that you can use to kind of set it up by yourself. Um, but in addition to that, we typically do video conferences uh, when, when labs are first getting set up to discuss the setup, discuss training procedures, and really talk about how we can help train uh, or help tailor the system to, to your particular use. And then we're pretty much always available for any kind of support. And we like doing that mostly through video conferences um, whenever possible. Perfect. Very good. Okay. Stefano has asked, uh, typically, what is the duration for learning uh, the pull task? Is this different between mice and rats? Yeah, so for rats, it's it's typically about three to four weeks. It's it's relatively quick task to train. For mice, it takes a little bit longer. Um, it can often take about two weeks longer than that. A lot of that, I think, is due to somewhat fewer trials with mice with the labs that we've worked with. Mm-hmm. Labs that do uh, food rewards tend to get a lot fewer trials. So you get fewer trials a day when you're training. Um, if you do the liquid reward, you can get more. We don't really have too much data yet on how much quicker it is with uh, the liquid training versus the food pellets, but um, I do believe the liquid reward helps train faster. Perfect. Okay. And maybe part of this also uh, a question about how many rats my subjects could be trained simultaneously. Uh, can you maybe touch on that, Drew, and then I'll ask Seth to chime in on what he's done in his lab also. Sure. That's, that's kind of a question of how diligent you want to be about putting rats or mice in and out of the systems. If you're running two 30-minute sessions a day, as most of the labs we work with do, um, you can really take one animal out and put one rat in almost at the same time. It just takes a minute to basically stop one session and start the next. So if, in a business day, you could pretty much, you could theoretically run eight animals uh, in a day and still take a break for lunch. If you're not so dedicated, then, you know, you'd probably be talking about five to six animals per system. Most of the labs that we work with who want to do kind of larger studies and look at big groups of, you know, maybe 20 animals or 30 animals in a study, they tend to get multiple systems. Um, I'm not trying to talk anyone into, like, oh, you should buy multiple systems. Um, but no, it's it, most labs that we work with, they start off with one system, they, they tend to like it, and then they scale up from there, usually up to about four or more systems. Okay. And, and Seth, uh, in regards to this question, kind of what happens in your lab on a daily basis? Certainly. So um, typically the configuration is that we'll have a graduate student and then a graduate student or a postdoc or a technician uh, working with one or two undergraduates um, to run one of these behavioral setups. And one behavioral setup typically for, for, our, for my lab consists of about 12 motor track cages. And we run a couple of these. We have uh, four racks of these things. So we run many, we're able to run many animals at once with a relatively small staff. So it scales pretty well. Perfect. Very good. 
Okay, a question from Victoria. She has asked, uh, can you share some effective examples of liquid rewards for mice? Yeah, so April Becker um, used peanut oil. That was kind of a surprise to us in her methods paper, which you might have read. So she wanted to try and do the behavior without any kind of food deprivation or water deprivation. She's um, she's really big on, on trying to figure out very kind of naturalistic mouse behaviors. And uh, kind of surprisingly, peanut oil was what she found. Where her mice did all that behavior in that paper without any kind of restriction. They did it just for the love of peanut oil. So that's maybe the first thing I'd suggest. Um, other than that, um, certainly doing any kind of liquid deprivation would 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 give you uh, a lot of motivation if you want to try that. I know that's uh, like liquid deprivation is particularly dicey uh, with animal models. Other than that, uh, I would suggest uh, sugary rewards. I, I don't have too much data on, on what type of rewards work best. Um, I just have kind of the anecdotal stuff that I get back from the labs that we work with. Okay. Uh, Seth, have you ever experimented um, with liquid reward or have any comments there? No, unfortunately, I, I've only used rats, so I've used uh, food pellets. Okay, perfect. And actually, a good um, follow-up to this, uh, there were questions from many in the audience, uh, Chelsea and Lawrence, uh, you know, in your experience, does the researcher need to limit diet outside of reaching activities or the training stage, etc.? So, uh, again, maybe, Drew, you could provide the, the standard supported answer as Valinta sees it, and Seth, maybe share what uh, you've done in your lab. Sure. So, so most labs we work with that do food rewards do complete food restriction during the week. Okay. Um, and so the animals are not getting, they're not getting any supplemental food unless they're particularly slow learners. Um, because we're using an adaptive uh, training algorithm, you can you can set the reward schedule so that they're still getting food even if they're not doing the task perfectly. And most rats or mice will get enough food to uh, maintain their body weight just during training. So you don't really have to give them supplemental food. And then a lot of labs won't do work on the weekends because nobody likes to work on the weekends. And I found that if you give them free food on the weekends and you take it away on Sunday afternoon, it doesn't seem to hurt behavior. I think we've done a little bit of analysis and found that that animals don't do as many trials on a Monday as they do on a Friday, but it's not uh, it's not a particularly dramatic number. Uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it's it's relatively small difference. Okay, uh, Seth, uh, and how about from you? Yeah, so Drew described how how my lab does it. So I don't have a lot to add, but we we monitor their weight closely. So we, we they're completely food restricted during the week, full feed on the weekends. And we find that their their food, especially with the adaptive algorithm, is really it's really stable. Their their weights are you know stay basically a hundred percent of their weight uh, when they go on food restriction. Yeah, Perfect. and I should add here too that in this case you may, you want to make sure you're using a full diet food pellet uh, that you can get from BioServe or Purina. Um, you don't want to be just using sugar pellets. Um, you want to have something that has the full nutritional profile uh, if you're going to try to get your whole. Um, food intake for the animal per day. Perfect. Okay, that's great feedback. And actually, just going back to Victoria's question about examples of liquid reward, um, Donald in the audience has chimed in, and I believe he's suggesting something that he's used as diluted sweetened condensed milk. Apparently works yeah. well. So, so there you go, a suggestion from our audience. Thanks, Donald. All right, so next question, uh, a question from Kristen. You mentioned someone is using the lever press test for bradykinesia. Uh, do you have information on the output of motor impairment? And uh, Seth, maybe you can take this one as I know that you've got some experience here. Yeah, so um, 
my lab used this for, in, uh, we've used this now in three models, I think, to look at, at uh, bradykinesia. So we used it in a model of ischemic stroke, which I talked about extensively today. We used it in a model of hemorrhagic stroke. Um, and we used it in a something we haven't published in uh, using some genetic rat models of Parkinson's disease uh, with the idea that hopefully we would be able to observe bradykinesia in those animals, but we never saw it. But in the first two models, we did see bradykinesia um, manifest in these animals as a reduction in the, uh, or an increase in the amount of time, the interpressed interval. So they're trained to press the lever rapidly within 500 milliseconds, and we see the interval grow longer after an injury. And so this is consistent with sort of a slowing down of forelimb function. So one thing we've never, um, it would be interesting to do this in some models that have other uh, features of motor dysfunction. So for instance, things like spasticity. We expect that we might see an animal where they would be able to initiate a press and then would hold it and be unable to release it or press a second time. So there's some other things that you might be able to see related to uh, bradykinesia in the lever test, but we've uh, not followed that up extensively. Okay. Well, that's a great answer. Um, and actually, another one for you. Um, our audience has asked, can Dr. Hayes, can you share how VNS stimulation was delivered to the rats? And then also sure. as a, as a follow-up to this, actually, I'm combining two questions here. Can you also clarify the difference uh, between VNS paired with rehab and then quote-unquote delayed VNS plus rehab? So that last example, I believe the last example that you shared uh, where there was a significant difference between the delayed VNS plus rehabs uh, group. Um, so just wait, I think the question is what that really means. Certainly. Okay. Uh, so both great questions. I'm sorry I didn't talk about the uh, delivery method for VNS earlier on. But the, I, the way this works is that animals receive um, just a standard bipolar stimulating cuff electrode. It gets implanted in the neck on the left cervical vagus nerve. We found that with left cervical vagus nerve, with the short burst of stimulation, we don't see any changes in um, uh, autonomic function, so especially cardiac function, which you can get if you stimulate the right vagus nerve. Okay. So the, the nerve projects bilaterally, so the, we get the same bang for our buck using left vagus nerve that we would get with uh, either both or right vagus nerve stimulation. So it's an implanted cuff. That's then the leads are tunneled up to a head cap, and then we plug the animals in uh, with basically like a swivel cord connection that's plugged in during uh, when they're when they're to receive their VNS. Perfect. Um, I can. I, I'm. You know. My lab is certainly interested in, in talking about the parameters of VNS, so, but that's something, you know, shoot me an email if you're more interested in that. I, I don't want to eat up, you know, the rest of your day talking about that. So it's a <laughs> yeah. great question. Great a big discussion, a big discussion. Awesome. Okay. And maybe we can elaborate more on that too in the Q&A uh, report uh, um, when we pull that together following today's lecture. All right, a couple, a couple more questions. Again, this is a good Q&A, so I want to keep it going. Again, if the audience has to go, no problem. So a question from Chelsea Dunham. Has any work been done to use this equipment as a physical therapy device for animals? And so she's referring here to treatment uh, paradigms uh, following a, like an orthopedic injury. Right. Uh, so not to my knowledge. Mostly so far it's been used in either just neurological impairment models um, or... Um, and we haven't really gotten into any kind of orthopedic models yet, but I'd be very excited to talk about that. It certainly is applicable. The, the, the tasks that the animals do after these impairment models is very similar to a lot of rehab tasks. I'm sure Seth could tell you a lot more about how those rehab tasks might 
might be similar to to various uh, human tasks, but things like the the supination task, turning a doorknob, that is that is one of the kind of key. Uh, rehabilitation tasks that, that people do following a neurological injury. Uh, I'm not too familiar with what sort of rehabilitation tasks uh, are done after an orthopedic injury, but our, our tasks should be pretty uh, applicable to that. Perfect. Okay. And uh, a question for Maria. She just wants to know about uh, your thoughts on uh, using this system in uh, light versus dark cycles and, um, you know, whether that would affect the training uh, process with the subjects and then the testing process. Uh, again, has, do you know of any experience where people are looking at uh, tests in either altered light, dark cycles? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I've done a lot of different types of behavior, not just motor behavior. And it certainly seems like testing during, um, during dark cycle tends to give you more activity. Mm -hmm. uh, with the labs that we work with on the motor track system, anyone who tests with mice tends to prefer dark, uh, dark cycle. They feel like they get a lot more activity out of that. With the rats, it's a little bit more variable. They seem to be a little bit more robust to uh, being run in the light cycle when they might be in the dark cycle in their home cage. It's certainly not the case that um, animals just quit working during the light cycle when you might expect them to be asleep because uh, they're nocturnal. Mm -hmm. So, you you know, they, they tend to fall into the routine that you set for them. But uh, I do believe that running during during the dark cycle for rodents is, is generally preferable if you can do it. It does mean you have to kind of bump your way around in the dark, but uh, I, I do think there's a little bit of benefit for that. Okay. Uh, Seth, anything to add on this subject? Has any of your research ever included these type of uh, considerations? Yeah, I mean, we've considered it, but we've it just sort of based on what Drew said, we've not seen big changes. We test them during the light cycle, and, it, you know, we, we see a couple hundred trials a session. So mm -hmm. it's not been a, a big, um, it's not been, it's not caused us to change anything, but it's certainly a consideration, and it's actually a really interesting question. It's an experimental question. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.